0: Okay, question for you, what are your goals for 2020? I know some of you have thought about this, some of you have thought you should be thinking about this, Um, some of you haven't even thought about it, but here's your chance. What are your goals for 2020? Um, Who do you want to be? What do you seek? What are you after? And why? In other words, for who, for what? All right. Thinking about that? Maybe you've written them down already. Here's one more. What should we seek as a family? Your your family, but also what about our family? We say this is a house of prayer for all nations. In the, in the Bible, house and home and family are all kind of the same thing. So, what As a family, as a family for all nations, a, house, a family of prayer for all nations, what should we be seeking this year in 2020. Okay, you had a minute to think about it. Tell somebody about it. Tell somebody next to you, hopefully not your spouse or the, somebody else you came with. Talk to somebody else about... You might have to move if, since you probably sat by your spouse. That's a good thing. But move a little bit to uh, talk to somebody else. What are your answers? Okay, does anybody want to share theirs or their ne- I shouldn't I should make you share your neighbors, I guess. No, no. Share yours. Anybody want to share theirs with everybody? One. Somebody have one goal they want to share? Yep. All right, great, thank you, yeah, adding more to your ministry, that's great, one more, okay, that's all right, you can keep them secret, I want to write more songs. you want to write more songs, okay, we want you to write more songs, um, that's good for us. And that's a good thing for us as a family. So um, as a family, as Bethel Christian Fellowship, we have often picked a theme that's just kind of like a goal, not necessarily. It can also just be what we think God's about to do, what is happening. So if you look on the front of your bulletin cover, you'll see the themes we have had. So um, I've been, I I guess, uh, 38 years ago I came here, but 30 years ago I started working part-time Just after that, we got Pastor Jim who introduced this idea. So you'll see, this is now the thirtieth year that we've had a theme sermon, and not that we finished any of these. We're still working on increasing trust, even though we—it's not that year anymore. Um, But last year, our theme was uh, a year of living justice, and we said we want to live justice, we want to live just, we want to live right. Justice and righteousness was our theme. One of our theme verses was, Seek first the kingdom of God, even his justice or righteousness, and all these things, food, clothing, will be added to you. So it was about seeking justice. And he already said, you know, everybody else in the world is seeking food and clothes and material things and the stuff they... But you don't need to do that because you have a father taking care of those things. So seek his kingdom and his justice, and then he'll take care of that other stuff. So that was one of the things we are talking about seeking. Now we haven't finished that. But we are, um, we're moving on to a new, a new theme, but I want to, today I'm just going to introduce the, team, the theme, okay? And I'm going to get there a little long way around, um, but uh, then we're going to continue uh, rolling it out and explaining it um, in the next weeks and through the year. So um, I want to go back to our first theme, 1990, a year of epiphany. I didn't know what epiphany was until Pastor Jim decided it was a year of epiphany. So um, he explained to us that epiphany is, is, first of all, kind of an experience of sudden and striking insight. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Um, sometimes in literature, it's when somebody, something kind of normal, just kind of triggers, oh, I get it now. And so it comes, though, from discovering a theophany or not, uh, discovering that God is with us. And it specifically talks about when Jesus was revealed. As God with us. And so it's a Christian holiday celebrating the revelation of God the Son as a human being in Jesus Christ. So in the Eastern church, they talk especially about the baptism of Jesus Christ when He said, You're my beloved Son, you bring me great joy. And also when He did the miracle of Cana, in the Western church, we especially think, and they do as well, about when the Magi came to see Jesus and He was revealed as the Messiah. At, for, the, uh, for the Gentiles. So, um, the visit of the Magi is the focus. Um, by the way, kids, you notice anything different about our decorations? Just asking the kids. Anything change about the decorations? Okay, keep looking. When What? The angel moved. The angel moved. Yeah, angels do that. This angel needed help, though. Anything else? Anything else change? Come on, kids. Anything else change? The angel moved. Something else? I was helping to undecorate already. Baby Jesus lifted higher. Baby Jesus lifted higher. No, I moved baby Jesus. I decided to put him back. Um. the shepherd's gone, yeah, the shepherd's gone, the angels are gone, now why would I do that, stick with me kids, so open, your, open your Bibles to Matthew 2, all right, Matthew chapter 2, All right. I'm missing the slide that says Matthew 2, but I don't know where it went. But uh, That's okay. Matthew 2. Everybody, if you don't have your Bible with you, um, there's a, a Bible right in front of you in the pew, behind the hymn book. All right. So open up to Matthew 2. There's Too much in there for us to uh, put it on a slide, all right? Um, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation in your pew. It's a new international version, but here we go. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. So Herod was ruling under the Romans. He was king of the Jews, but but given by the Romans, so he's under them. And Bethlehem in Judea emphasized that this is where Judah, he's He was born where Judah's family was. Bethlehem was where David was. This is the place where the long-expected king was coming. All right? Um, About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Okay, so here's what I want you to do with this. Uh, I think they're rearranging the slides. All right, here's what I want you to do as as we go through this story. I want you to think about this. Who are each of these characters? We're going to be introduced to some different characters, okay? Kids, I want you to think about who are these characters? Who are they? And what's their motivation? What are they after? What are they doing what they do for? What What for? All right? And who are you in this story? How is this character like you? Okay, so as we introduce each of the characters, I want you to think about how are you like this character? And then finally, where's God in all of these stories? Because it it doesn't say directly, completely where God is. So God shows up indirectly. And that's kind of the way it is with epiphany. Sometimes you're like, oh, God was in that. God was just there. And I I just noticed it now. Or a lot of times we don't notice. Okay. So about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So um, what is a wise man? What? I remember at a Christmas program we had back in the day, somebody said, the three wise guys. Um, Is that just a wise guy? Um, Were there three of them? Um, Did they come to the stable? So these are some of the questions we have. So first of all, who is or what is a, a magi? Magus is the plural, and we have an English word that comes from that. The English word is magician. A magician. Now, this is not the kind of magician that pulls rabbits out of hats and does sleight of hand that kind of deceives you through tricky things. This is a different kind of magician. So there are some examples where this word is used. I'm going to start with Daniel and his colleagues in uh, Daniel chapter 2, and actually several places. Um, It talks about Daniel and his colleagues. Now, it doesn't use the word magi because that's Greek. But when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, which is already done before this is happening. So when Matthew is writing, he's thinking about the Greek translation. He's using this word. So in Matthew 2, it says, One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As he stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. And he said, I'm serious about this. Tell me my dream. So what are these astrologers and and enchanters and sorcerers, what are they supposed to be able to do? They're supposed to be able to divine or understand or see things that nobody else can see. Invisible things somehow by looking at something. So, astrologers looked at stars, other people looked at, you know, some people look at tea leaves, some people look at crystal balls, some people look at Ouija boards, some people look at economic forecasts. Some people are supposed to be able to know what's going to happen, right? They're supposed to look at the the indicators and figure out where we're going and see the secret things that are hidden from other people. Um, and Daniel was actually one of them, because when it says, we're going to cut off their heads because they can't tell me what the dream is, Daniel's included. And he goes, wait, 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 wait. He says, no, no, give us a little time. And he went and prayed, and then it concludes that story with, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things that and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. So, this story is telling that actually, all these guys, with all their divining and all their tricks and all their forecasts and all their economic numbers and whatever, they didn't know. But God did. And God revealed it to his prophet. And this is kind of a theme that is repeated different times in scripture. You guys remember Joseph? Everybody else couldn't tell anything, didn't know what was going on. He had this weird dream. Joseph came in and said, this is what God has showed me that dream is about. And it happened, right? And then, um, so there's this, there's this theme of the king has advisors. And because people in those times believed there was gods going, doing things, you couldn't just look at the economic numbers. You had to know what the gods were doing. And the stars were powers, living beings that were around the earth, and they were doing things, and you had to be watching what they were doing to figure out what was happening. So they were figuring out what was happening. Um, Two other places in the New Testament where this word is used, and that's in Acts 8, Simon, and Acts 13, Elymas. So let's read those, When I to turn to Acts 8, verse 9. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there. That's the word, magician, magus. Simon had been a sorcerer there, is the word this one used, for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he'd astounded them with his magic. But when people came, Simon also believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Then Peter and John come, the Holy Spirit falls on people, and then Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people. He offered money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps you will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you said won't happen to me. So, Simon is a magician. What is Simon's motivation? Hmm. Is that money? Power. He wants to be amazing. He wants to be astounding. He wants people to listen to him. He wants to have influence, and he'll pay any kind of money to get that kind of power and influence and be amazing. He wants to be a celebrity and more, right? So Simon, interesting, is a Samaritan, and he... He follows Jesus, but then in his heart, it's not really following Jesus. It's actually underneath of all that, there's some bitter envy and jealousy and the desire to be amazing, right? He's willing to pay that money to get that power. So he's a Samaritan, and he's kind of got mixed motives, and we don't know if after this he really repented and followed truly, or he still ended up kind of mixed motives, but there's a lot of people, even religious people, even pastors, who want to be amazing and astounding, and they'll pay to be a celebrity and to have the starlight and to be America's number one. Okay, Elymas, Let's go to Elymas. Among the prophets and teachers. Okay, they send out. They send out Paul and Barnabas. Um, That's verse 6 of Acts chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, there in Cyprus, where they met a Jewish sorcerer. The name? Magician, Magus, a singular for magi. Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Paul and Barnabas said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. So what's his motivation? Why does he want to keep the governor from believing in Jesus? He wants control, power. He he likes the influence he has on the governor, He wants to be the man. He wants to be his number one advisor, and this Jesus and these other people are cutting in on his project. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, "'You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you,' and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, He began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead them. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Notice that the teaching came with demonstrations and illustrations, and he was astonished at the teaching. So there's the three magicians, the three magus or magi, in the New Testament. So, and notice that it's not clear, or maybe it doesn't matter, Elymas was a deceiver. Now, whether he was deceiving, seems like he was deceiving on his own, he was a trickster, but he was also deceived by demons. Now, does it matter if people are deceived by the demons that they talk to, or they're deceiving you yourself? Sort of, but really not, because you end up deceived. Either way, right? Either way, it's not true. Now, it might be 90% true, but that 10% is going to steer you off. Um, So, now, in order to understand this, excuse me if I uh, go a little bit into East Africa, but I think the East Africans will be happy for this. Who is a sorcerer or a witch? An mganga is a healer or a diviner, all right? See, we don't have enough good words in English. When we say sorcerer, we don't know, like, what is that? What is a sorcerer? Now, if you look in the back of your, like in the the index of the, uh, for example, this is my NLT study Bible, it says that a sorcerer, sorcery is the use of power gained from the assistance or control of evil spirits, especially for divining, figuring things out. So an Amganga would be that kind of sorcerer, a local neo-traditional healer or diviner such a person publicly claims to discover hidden truths, diagnose, and heal. You got that? Isn't that what those guys did? You remember, Pharaoh also had his advisors, his sorcerers, who claimed to have all this power. They could find out hidden truths, discover things, explain what nobody else explains, right? Uh, Just to be clear, in Swahili, Mchawi is somebody else. We might use the word witch. Um, And that is a person whom... Some say causes harm to others through secret evil means. So, this is a really important question in East Africa and a lot of places, whether there are Wachawi or witches in the Bible. I don't think you'll find an evil person who causes harm through secret means. Balaam was supposed to, but he didn't do it. You'll find a lot of Waganga, though. A lot of healers and diviners and magi and magicians who claim to show things. So was Simon like in secret? No, no, he was bragging. The magicians were bragging. The, the Daniel's colleagues were all advisors to the king. Elimus was an advisor to the king, like those guys. They were all public figures. So when we talk about, here's what, here's the interesting thing to me. Why don't we translate magi? As sorcerers or magicians, but we translate the other ones as sorcerers and magicians. Well, it's the history of our translations because we don't really believe it's possible. So, these guys were from Babylonia. You know, Babylon had a bad reputation to Jews, they were the ones who would destroy the temple. Call, haul them off into captivity, and these are the pagan diviners, sorcerers. So what this is saying is these guys, these guys up here are pagan enemy sorcerers. Got that? Who came to worship the Messiah? We got so used to this story that we're like, oh yeah, those guys, whatever they are, whatever the Magi is. No, no, this is shocking, folks. Pagan enemy sorcerers travel 900 miles to find the king of the Jews. What? And what is God messing around with those people for? How is it that he uses. They're divining to speak to them. These people have just a pinprick of light. And they're like, I see light. Now, they also have some Jews around them. It seems like they're mixing in this maybe Deuteronomy passage about a star for the king that's coming. And so they persevere in following 900 miles to find this pinprick of light. And there are people like that around the world who have just a pinprick of light, but they go after that little bit of light that they see. And God shows himself in the ways they can understand. I know an African guy who said, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, my ancestors showed up in a dream and told me I should become a Christian. That's weird. But um, somebody else, a friend of Jan's who was Korean, uh, he was following Taoism and he was reading the Taoism said, the Tao you are are currently following, the way you are currently following is not the way. He said, oh, and he became a Christian. Um, So through reading about Taoism, he became a Christian. So God sometimes reaches out to people who are really searching, and they might just surprise you who those people are. Now the first readers of Matthew's gospel we're like, what? But it gets weirder, okay? Now, you don't think it's weird because you're so used to this story. You're like, oh yeah, that story, whatever it means, about those guys, magi, the kings. We don't know if they're kings. They don't think they're kings. They're people who are diviners, who are trying to figure out through contact with uh, evil spirits or divining. Or, so today, when we call them psychics or, or palm readers or, uh, or maybe economists or whatever... People who somehow look in their tea leaves and figure out what's going to happen in the future. Why you got sick. The secret things. All right? So um, so here they come. Back to Matthew. So some wise men from eastern lands, probably Babylon, arrived in Jerusalem. 900-mile trip. I mean, at least... Ezra took 900 miles, took him four months to travel from Babylon to to Jerusalem. So this is a long trip, if you're walking. Asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, of course, they'd go to the capital, right? They go to the capital and ask around, so where's the king? We saw his star rise, and, and we know that that must mean that there's a king, a new king of the Jews. Surely he must be in the capital, right? What's the, what's the wise men's motivation? What do they want to do? To worship. They have traveled 900 miles to give adoration and worship to this new king. Wow. That's their motivation. Is that your motivation? Now, I want you to notice something. If you put these three sets of magicians together in the Bible, it's pretty surprising. The Jewish sorcerer, magician, Elemas, he is absolutely against Jesus, tries to keep everybody from following Jesus, Right? The Samaritan, kind of in between mixed-up religion, he wants it, follows it, but he wants to do it for his own benefit. He wants to be a Christ follower so he can get amazing, astounding people listen to him. He's even willing to pay money for that. But these Babylonian sorcerer, magicians, astrologers, their motivation is just to find and seek and worship the true king, the king of the Jews, the just king who everybody's excited about waiting for. They want to find him just to worship him. They don't come with any agenda, they don't want to be signed up on his mailing list. They don't want to be, they just want to worship him. Pretty amazing. Isn't it? So, they come to Jerusalem. They're asking this. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. As was everyone in Jerusalem. The capital is astir. There's foreigners among us. What are they doing here? They're spying. No, it's not just that. It's pagan, evil, sorcerer foreigners. But worse, they're talking about a different king. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, "Where is the Messiah supposed to be born?" Now, first of all, who's Herod? First, as far as they know, he's the current king. He should know if there's a new king coming, right? So they go and ask him. And you now Herod, Herod is a Edomite. He's Edomite. You know Esau's stock. He's not really a descendant of Judah or of David, and he, so he's not really totally accepted by the local people. But he's got connections in Rome, and he keeps his connections in Rome, greased up, and he takes care of things at home so they don't have any problems. And um, so Herod and Herod builds these incredible projects. I mean, he is somebody who gets things done—an amazing thing—and. And the most amazing project, I mean, he built Caesarea and all these amphitheaters and all these different things, but the most amazing project he did was the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is a picture of a model, but can you see, can you see the steps there? Those are just little steps, right? So obviously, this is huge, especially for that day. Even the foundation walls that are left at the Wailing wall are huge things that were massive to move. All the foundation is left. So Herod, of course, you know, the Vikings play in what? U.S. Bank Stadium, right? So this is known as Herod's Temple. He wanted to make sure that, you know, Yah- Yahweh. Were, Vikings play there, but it's U.S. Bank Stadium. Yahweh lives in the temple, but it's Herod's Temple. That's how it's known. Because he re- he rebuilt it. He made it amazing, right? So um, So Herod... He's trying to be a good Jewish king, and he says to these guys in a little bit, he says that he wants to worship the king, so they say, okay, but is that his real motivation? Let's read on a little bit. Okay, so he calls the priests and teaches religious law. Now, who are these Jerusalem residents and scholars? That's the next question he called the meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, well, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Jerusalem of Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. They quote chapter and verse exactly. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. You win. Good scholars. They know exactly where he's going to be born. And where is that? Six miles away. In this little nothing village. Right? So they they show up at the capital. St. Paul, he calls up the cathedral and the scholars from the seminaries, they get together, they say, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Roseville. That's right. Right here in Roseville. So they say, thank you. Um, All right. Then Herod called for a private meeting with The magi, the magicians, the sorcerers. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Right? He's such a good worshiper. Such a good guy. I mean, he keeps kosher. Such a good Jewish... Okay, let me read you a little bit. Herod the Great um, built all these magnificent things. Um, He was also known for his family troubles and his brutal treatment of those who opposed him or whom he considered threats. He murdered two of his wives and three of his own sons when he suspected them of plotting against him. So Herod is insecure. He is afraid. He knows that people don't really think he's the king of the Jews, even if he calls himself that, he's insecure that somebody else is going to play, take his place. And he'll bump off his wives, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and his sons, yes, all of those people, in order to hang on to his throne. Any of you insecure? I, 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 you know, I was kind of like, oh yeah, Harry, nah, bad guy. And then I was like, I can be insecure sometimes that something might happen. That, And I, I can hang on to things. And I can do things that aren't really the right thing to do just because I'm afraid to let go? I can be insecure. That's one way I'm like this guy. Um, Ruthless leaders tend to be insecure. And the higher up they go, they know the harder it is to fall, and so the harder they grasp onto things, and that's how you get dictators like Herod. So... So he murdered two of his wives, three of his own sons, when he suspected them of plotting against him. Caesar Augustus once said that he would rather be Herod's hus than his huyos, that's in Latin, or he'd rather be Herod's swine than his son, because Herod didn't eat pigs, but he killed his sons. So he was such a good religious person that he didn't ever eat pork, but he wasn't happy enough to kill his sons off if that was necessary. When Jesus was born toward the end of Herod's reign and Herod heard him referred to as a future king, Herod attempted to have him killed also. Unable to locate the boy, Herod then ordered the massacre of all the boys less than two years old in the Bethlehem area, an act typical of his ruthlessness and paranoia. He was ruthless, he was paranoid. In fact, when he was getting close to dying, he had a whole bunch of leaders imprisoned and demanded that they be executed when he died so that people would mourn. Because he was afraid they would just rejoice. Otherwise, so he was that ruthless. Um, so actually, you know, this Bethlehem was a small village, 30 kids maybe, killing off 30 babies. That's like peanuts for Herod. People say it's not in records. Other ways, Pfft, that's no big deal. That's like, I mean, that's like one mass killing here around America too, right? 30 kids. What's a big deal? Um, anyway, 30 kids. He's got no problem bumping off kids he doesn't know. So his motivation, he's insecure. He wants to hang on to the power he has. What about these Jerusalem residents and scholars? What's their motivation? Well, what we know is they don't do anything with this information. They are scholars... There are scholars like this, just in case, um, who love information but don't necessarily do anything with it. They're the Bible teachers, the Bible scholars of the day, and they know exactly chapter and verse where to find out where he's supposed to be born. It's six miles away, and they sit at the Capitol. And in the Cathedral. Roseville is like too far. It's a half hour on the bus to Bethlehem from Jerusalem, in my experience. It wasn't a bus, but you could walk. These guys had come 900 miles. They couldn't walk six miles. But why should they? They're already in the capital. They're already in the temple. Yahweh resides in the temple. God is here among us, and we are the prominent, prestigious interpreters of what God has said through the Bible. So why should we bother going off to some village Just because these foreigners think something might have happened there. Even if that's what the Bible says. They're unimpressed, unmoved. All of Jerusalem, as far as we know, just sits in Jerusalem. Because they think they're already at the center of things, so why bother? All right? Okay. Who is Jesus? That's the real question, right? Who is Jesus. Let's read on. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. This is why it seems to be more than just a star. It could be a star, but stopping over the place where he was. When they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So now, why did I move? The shepherds and the and the angels, kids, do you know why? Because when the Magi showed up, at least months later, the shepherds had moved on. And Mary and Joseph decided they didn't really like living in a stable. They got a house. And. The baby is not referred to as a baby, it's referred to as a child. So Luke talks about him as a baby. Here he's a child. So some months or however long it took, less than two years, they've moved into a house. There's a child there. The Magi show up. And notice it always puts the child before Mary because the real issue is this child. And what did they do? They worshiped. They gave all this precious, most precious stuff that they had been able to collect and they brought it, and they gave it to Jesus. Their action was to persevere, to seek, and to find. Keep seeking, and you will find and worship Jesus. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Get up, flee to Egypt. With the child and his mother, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. And then later he comes back from Egypt. So I, I also wonder, what was the motivation for the people in Africa who welcomed these refugees? The people in Egypt, now there were a bunch of Jewish people down there, But when these refugees showed up at their door with some kind of made-up story about how the government was after them, Herod wanted to kill them personally, somebody welcomed them, and they were welcomed as refugees in Africa. So did you know Jesus was an African refugee? I'm sure some of you did, but... uh, He he didn't live in a refugee camp. They didn't have those. But he he was a refugee in Africa, in Egypt. And somebody welcomed him. And I don't know what their motivation was because it doesn't say so. But um, I want you to think about who is Jesus. Now they say, we've come to see the newborn king. And Herod says... Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Where is the Christ? Where is the anointed one? Where is the one we've been waiting for? Ever since David left the throne, we've been waiting for a just king to show up. And we had all those bad kings and a few halfway decent ones, but then they were so bad, we got wiped out. We got wiped out by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And then... We briefly had a little time with the Maccabeans, but then they turned out to be corrupt and unjust too. And then the Romans took over. And Herod, he's no just king. He's no Messiah. So who is Jesus? He is the just king. He's the anointed one we've been waiting for. He's the son of David. We've wanted all these centuries. And he's right down the road in a little house. And some people want to see him enough, want to worship him enough that they persevered with just a little light, kept asking questions until they found him so they could worship him. Now, who is Jesus? Who is Emmanuel? Who is God with us? Is this Jesus? Now, Jesus was... um, So... After the Roman Empire got saved, then the barbarians in northern Europe, they, they got saved too. Why? In Europe got saved. And then even the northern Europeans, those barbarian Vikings that were invading all the they even eventually, after the Ethiopians and the Indians and the Chinese and everybody else had heard about it, eventually those Vikings, my ancestors, heard about it. And of course, then they made some pictures of Jesus being Emmanuel with them, like a good German-Norwegian baby, right? Or is this Jesus. Is this Emmanuel? Yeah. Emmanuel is God with us. We don't actually know what he looked like. He looked like us. He looked like us. That's how Ethiopians imagine him for centuries, millennia. The Ethiopians have drawn pictures like this. Um, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Christ the king. Now I want to talk about this just briefly. How do we know who a Christian is? And is a Christian a set of people? Is that a label for a certain class of people that you can tell them like a dog versus a cat? What is a Christ follower? So you see, the people in Jerusalem and the scholars and Herod and the Jews, they were the in group. And they had these boundaries about you had to not eat pigs. And you had to have the right theology. And you had to really have the right ancestry to be in. And sometimes in church we do that too. you gotta, you got to follow all the rules. Now, I, I must admit, with membership, you do have to be a member in order to vote. But uh, basically, we put these rules. That you got to um, not smoke, chew, or girl go with girls who do. you got to follow the right theology. you got to do the, the particular things. Is that what makes somebody a Christian? What if somebody way off... Did these magi have good theology? Did they understand the Trinity? Did they have Genesis memorized like those scholars? No. But they were following what they knew, and they kept pursuing it. So a bounded set is that kind of what's on this table, is on this table. And if you're off this table, you're not in here. But a bounded set is different. A bounded set... A center group is somebody, which direction are you going? These Babylonian sorcerer pagans were way off, but they were headed toward following Jesus. And those other guys, right next to Jesus, six miles away, were headed away. They were into their scholarly acclaim and publishing articles or ruling things or whatever they were up to. They didn't have time to go find what they were in for was something else. The people who are Christ followers, God knows who they are. He draws that line. But they're the people who are following. They may not look Christian to you. And then again, sometimes Christian changes. I was talking to my friend. a friend, a new friend who at teaches missions at North Central, he was talking about being in Iraq and going to church and seeing people doing this and saying, wow, are you guys doing that to try to get the Muslims to, uh, to be able to come to your church? And they're like, no, we've been doing this for 2,000 years. The Muslims followed us. Really? Is that what a Christian looks like? People bow down? People, what could... And what is God doing in the midst of all this stuff? When I was talking to him, he said, you know, Iranians are super easy to bring to Jesus right now because Islam has been so disappointing to them. And I was like, what? I thought we lost in 1979 when the embassy was invaded and things were all messed up. I thought we lost in China when Mao Zedong kicked out all the missionaries. But then millions of people came to Jesus. God is doing stuff in his kingdom, that we have no idea. But when we make our kingdom and our identity something else, or we mix it together, then we get confused about what God's doing and what is about our people. um, Bounded sets and centered sets. Which direction are you moving? So those, in Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. Us Vikings were brought near. Through him we both, far away and near, have access to the Father by one Spirit. So, here's the pictures that we have depicted. Now, these are some good European pictures. Um, bringing the nations to Jesus. Good blonde Jesus. i never met any blondes when I lived in Jerusalem, but um, good blonde Jesus. And you'll notice that the African happens to be the youngest, immature uh, half-clothed. Um, here, again, the African is the youngest. There's a really white Jesus there and a really white Mary. Um, he happens to be farthest away. And here, oh yeah, can you find the African person? Oh yeah, there he is. The child, farthest away. We, You know, he, the Africans get to come. We'll let them. Just barely worship our white Jesus. Um, Oh, there's a white, white, white baby there. And we're, oh yeah, there's an African over there. The youngest, the farthest away. They can get in, maybe. We're not segregated, we're just putting them next to the roar. So, let me tell you something, folks. The world is changing. So, Africa used to be the dark continent far, far away. Here's a magazine from today. So, in 2010, 46% of the world's Christians were in Latin America and Africa. Now it's 51%. The majority is Latin American and African. In 2010, the most highest percentage was in Europe 25%. Not so anymore, only 23% in Europe. 25% 25 percent in Latin America, of 26 percent of the world's Christians are in Africa. The most of any continent is in Africa. U.S. and Canada has gone from 12 percent to 9 percent. So if you want to know what's happening in the church, if you want to know where the real theology is happening, if you want to know what's happening, you got to get out of Wheaton and Springfield and Rome and go to the other 90 percent. Yeah, Joe, you got to get out of Wheaton once in a while. Um, see what God's doing and, and you know what, they're coming here too Yeah, the Somalis are coming here and the Christians are coming here about the same percentage of immigrants are Christian as are Christian here so it's not swinging except sometimes those non-Christians get saved when they get here because they're in limbo of course sometimes the Christians fall away because it's something to do with how we welcome them too right? Um, okay, so um, is that a little better? Everybody's like, nah, not sure. Even if most Christians in the world are dark-skinned, can Jesus really be dark-skinned? Well, Jesus was dark-skinned, folks. Um, he wasn't white like me. Sorry. Um, he may not have been anyway. We don't know what Jesus looked like. He was in that place in between Africa and Asia and Europe, and he was some kind of mix of everybody. Um, And everybody gets to worship him, if they want to. So what's your motivation? What are you seeking? This next year is a year for the just king. That's our theme. We didn't think we were done with justice. But we felt like living justice got a little bit too much focus on us living, just. And you know what? It's not really about us. They were trying to figure things out and nothing really happened. So these verses up here talk about today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior's been born to you. He is Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. That's what Luke 2.11 says. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace He is the just king, the one we've been waiting for. All right. And thank you to Julie Thompson for those beautiful banners. There's also a bookmark with a poem that you'll get uh, on your way out, and there'll be some artwork next week on your bulletin cover. For those, thanks to all the artists. Um, And the worship team can come up. Um, So let me go back. What are your goals for 2020? What are your goals for 2020? Who do you want to be? What do you seek? And here's the most important one, I think. Why? Because you can seek to be a Bible scholar like those guys for good reasons or not so good reasons. You can seek to rule something To bring justice to people or to be a big shot? For who? For what? You'll notice this is the first year we've had a different preposition. We've had a year to and a year of. But we purposely are saying it's a year for. When you look at your goals, is it a year for the just king? Is every one of your goals something for the just king and the kingdom the just kingdom, and what and who and how should we seek as a family. That's something we want to discern together as we go forward in this year. Jesus talked a lot about what his motivation was. One of the things he said was, I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. If the, if the leaders would come up so we can serve communion... Um, We're going to talk some more, we're going, to, we're going to back up next week, and we're going to go, wait a second, we were in the books of Moses, how did we get kings? And what did kings have to do with this? How do we get to needing and expecting this just king? And how is Yahweh king? How is Jesus king? We're going to also talk about some other things. We've talked about just money, just power, just sex. We're going to talk about just healing, just work, just evangelism, some other things coming up. So we're going to have some... In the sermons coming up, we're going to have some other angles at this year for the just king. But one of the things we're going to do during Lent is we're going to figure out what is a king entering the capital to go to a cross? A lot of people don't get that. A lot of us don't get that. But he came to be king and he was enthroned on a cross. He defeated the powers and principalities on the cross. So we are partaking in this commemoration of his commitment. The just king who was given for us.